0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height, And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode
1: include... Intro Scenarios. Elvis. Carcosan Superheroes.
0: And Corpse Dowsing. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything.
1: Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages.
0: But you know young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean
1: perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're magical kitties.
0: Every magical kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with
1: foes, like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons.
0: They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super
1: simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's.
0: And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and
1: love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure.
0: A soul- play graphic novel adventure within
1: moments of opening it kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game
0: run magical kitties save the day for kids as young as six years old
1: and for everyone else who loves kitties
0: a great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM
1: if you've been looking for a way to introduce your
0: friends and family to role-playing games magical kitties save the day is the perfect game to do it do you mean perfect I also do not Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut where, I guess, uh, you would get some dice, and Sarah, you get some miniatures, and Derek, you'll be playing the Doritos, that's a special class, we're going to need to help you out with that. So, Peter Frampton has invited you to his haunted mansion, where he's not just coming alive, but coming alive, to welcome you into the gaming hut, where our subject is introductory scenarios, and specifically... What, Robin, should they contain? And since you've asked the question, I can only presume that you have a armload of well-thought-out, cunningly phrased answers to lay on the kids.
0: Right. So this is a question that I, I, there's sort of two ways that you can set up an introductory scenario for a, a trad-style game. One of them is, what is it that goes in the book? Uh, In the core book, Mm -hmm. the tradition of scenarios that appear in the core book, I'm not sure where we are on that as that being a standard component these days, or the adventure that drops right alongside. Theoretically, hopefully, if you're not caught in that production pipeline thing where you sweat and toil and fight with the printer and you finally ship your role-playing game and you go well, should we start working on an adventure? Hmm. Ideally, you've been working on the adventure in parallel and have it to drop alongside the book. You'd be surprised how many times the first scenario occurs.
1: You you would be surprised uh, unless, of course, you cut your teeth on Nephilim, which famously took 18 months to drop a scenario (laughs) to tell people how to play that ridiculously recondite hard to get into game.
0: (laughs) Yes, if there's ever a game that needed you to an illustration of what to do with it. That was Nephilim. And that, I guess, brings us to the main thing. Is There's traditionally sort of two formats. Often you used to find, I think, more so than today in core books, there'd be a very rudimentary intro scenario that was basically a rules tutorial. So that's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's all structured so that the very first thing you do requires the simplest resolution method. And then the next thing you do requires the next simplest. And then you get to a little more complicated thing. And at the end... There's the thing requiring the most complicated resolution method, which would probably almost always be a fight. But that'd be pretty simple, and there wouldn't be much story to it. And that, I would submit, is most of the time not a great introduction to uh, a game because it's leaving out the main thing you want to introduce, which is, as you've already suggested with Nephilim, what do you do with this? What is a standard baseline core experience? So teaching the rules is one thing, but really I think what you want to do uh, when you're writing an intro scenario is to go, what are the basic elements and moments that should constitute a a typical scenario? And let's do that. And there's two sides of that. One of that is make sure you identify all of those elements and put them in. And the other thing is don't get too fancy don't ahead of time start well i think the first thing to do is to really deviate from the norm with this intro scenario Mm. and throw in a bunch of extra complicated things
1: robin if you mean the kingsbury horror just say the kingsbury horror everyone (laughs) knows you mean the kingsbury horror
0: and for those listeners who don't know the kingsbury horror is the intro scenario in trail of cthulhu and so thoughts have been had about (laughs) trail of cthulhu too. And so, what are you thinking that you're going to do the next time, or do you want to start by explaining why you you wouldn't do what you did in Kingsbury Horror?
1: The thing about Kingsbury Horror is that it was, in one sense, it was absolutely a show-off of what the core activity of the game is, in that it's investigating a crime ripped from the real headlines of the 1930s that turns into a unknowable mythos horror that probably destroys you. The trouble is that for players new to gumshoe, I suspect it's very throw you into the deep end. It does not really provide the trail of clues that you are so fond of and that maybe newer GMs might prefer to have as they feel their way through this new system. It instead is an early version of my Ocean of Clues method where you've got a lot of stuff and as you put it together, things get worse, and then disaster strikes because you've reached the horrific truth. So, were I to redo a scenario for Trail of Cthulhu Second Edition, I think that it would be uh, it would behoove me to come up with a more traditional Trail of Clues structure against my every instinct to cloud things up with nonsense and present a relatively straightforward scenario involving, one assumes, a relatively standard Lovecraftian monster. So, your Mego, perhaps, or your Deep Ones, something that people familiar with other Lovecraftian things will be able to nod and say, oh, I get it. And then you will have a a satisfactory discovery of, of evil without necessarily the player having to rejigger their assumptions about the universe because that can wait until a little bit later in the game, I feel like now.
0: Right, because if you're ever coming up with concepts for scenarios and you go, well, that one's been done a lot of times. That's the obvious one. That's the one to do as an interesting Yeah, that's exactly the one. So, if you're going to do a, a Cthulhu scenario, the one where at the end you bust up the cultists as they're trying to summon the entity, that's the thing to do because the whole point of this scenario is to tell the players... Here's the baseline. Here's the simple thing. And also, if they're playing this game for the first time, they don't need to also figure out a complicated storyline. They want a familiar thing to base it against. And so if you're doing an F20 intro scenario, you meet up in the tavern, you get an assignment, you head out through the wilderness. There's a wilderness encounter. Then you go into the dungeon and you fight a thing. And in fact, you could probably, the best way to think of an intro scenario is to go, what is the most obvious cliched thing I can possibly do with a scenario in this system? And then have the the commitment to actually do that, to, to commit to being simple, because there's all sorts of other things that the characters are, are going to be encountering as their first thing in the world. And so if you have a game where, you know, character interaction is the whole point, you make sure there's a bunch of character interaction. If it's all about fighting you make sure there's an interesting combat, but not that interesting. It's not the one where you throw in this tricky thing that the gnolls do. It's the one where, yeah, you just surprise a bunch of gnolls mm-hmm. and, you know, find ways that it can be embellished or, you know, have an interesting choice point or a scene or, you know, something cool and memorable. But, color within the lines, you know, this is where you're establishing what the lines are.
1: Yeah. And, uh, if you have a brand new game or a game that is in a genre that is not actually very well represented amongst tabletop gaming, as with Knights, black agents, I did actually take some of the lesson of Kingsbury horror and think, all right, what is the very standard sort of spy story that we can tell? And then at the end, have our reveal that, oh, there are vampires, and that have that reveal sort of built up slowly, but that the central conceit that you're trying to do is something very familiar, and that, of course, is stealing a laptop and getting a hold of it, which is, you know, the MacGuffin in the briefcase goes all the way back to the beginning of the the art form. So you have that scenario, then the meat happens in a graveyard, people are thinking, oh, this is not good, and then turns out the reason you think it's not good is that someone involved is a Renfield, that there's vampires afoot. And that, I feel like, does the other thing that an introductory scenario ideally does, is it gives you jumping off points for telling more stories already. So that if you really love that scenario, there's a next place to go, as opposed to just, well, I I hope that someone calls us to another haunted house. That would be neat. Yeah,
0: drop in little things that the GM can then take and incorporate so that you know, suggest here's a recurring villain or, you know, while you're down in uh, that dungeon, you see, oh, wait, there's a big door that leads down to another level. And then you're, you know, you have to leave when it floods, but you realize, oh, well, the monsoons are going to part. And uh, maybe when the uh, the dry season comes, we'll come back and and look at that door. So have Mm -hmm. a, a hook at the end. It's also valuable, I would suggest to people who are designing games, to think very early on what your intro game is going to look like, because that's going to tell you whether your assumptions about what your game is doing are correct. And in fact, have you settled on a core activity? Because of course, we often talk about the fact that the core activity, which is, you know, you are X who do Y, you are uh, vampires who engage in intrigue, you are modern agents up against an occult conspiracy that again surprisingly often uh people will design entire games where the core activity is you can do anything Mm. and so the process of thinking well of the various anythings yeah what's the core anything can really help you zero in on what it is that your game is all about and so uh, even while you're beginning to to create your initial outline for what it is that interests you about this game what is the simplest possible satisfying adventure that could express that and so again obviously you know if you're playing space traders make sure that you're oh wait a minute i i guess i guess i should have a space trading scenario and as you start to work through that it's possible that you go oh wait i i don't know how to create an interesting scenario around just trading oops (laughs) Uh, uh, in fact really i guess the only way to make this interesting is to throw in a pirate attack and have i really designed a game that's about protecting merchant fleets and is not about what the merchants do when they land on the planet because that really tells me something about what interests me or what you can get players to do and even the process of how do the characters buy into this what is the you know, what engages them with the premise may remind you, it's like, hmm, maybe I need some rules that guarantee that the players commit to the premise. That's an interesting thing to make sure you have. So uh, it's the intro scenario is very often an afterthought. If you make it a forethought, you may wind up teaching yourself a lot about uh, what your game is really about and what you can maybe convince players to do.
1: Yes. The um, decision, I mean, ideally, you'll decide about the game's core activity well before you come up with the scenario, we all hope, but the other thing that the intro scenario can do is to illustrate for players who are coming into a game where you can do anything, the sort of anything that that you can do that uh, the scenario supports. So, even if, you know, maybe they don't know what they want to do, they just want to explore your wonderful new character generation and resolution mechanics, but now they're stuck. And the uh, scenarios can, in some cases, and I don't know if this technically counts as an intro scenario, but the scenarios can then point out sort of the spectrum of stories uh, that can be told. And of course, Call of Cthulhu uh, famously, it used to have, I think, two or three intro scenarios in it, and now it has four. And they're all sort of different, but they're all in investigating mythos mysteries but you can imagine a a version of call of cthulhu that has you know two investigations and one straight up gang war and one you know uh experience of the numinous that destroys you because all of those are things that call of cthulhu does really well and present that as a as a spectrum of options the 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 many such choices and uh, when i was writing um gerb's horror i i provided 3 they weren't scenarios because uh, right, pre-writing group scenarios is deprecated for a lot of reasons. But there were three sample campaign arcs that you could use to demonstrate. Oh, this is the sort of thing you could do in in this game. Or when I did uh, day after Ragnarok, there's I think four sort of campaign arcs, one for each of the four sort of suggested core competencies of the of the setting, and then that provides you with a lot of variety that you then don't have to go and say in the text of the book. Because the sample campaign or the sample scenario is doing the job for you.
0: Right. And you can go back in time to the very, you know, the second wave of role-playing games after D&D and see that quite often there was a intro scenario and it was quite off model because it's like, well, here's a spy game. And the scenario is, here's a spy complex that you systematically go through room by room and kill everybody you see inside.
1: Good old Spreck
0: and Stella. Yes. Or... You know, and one of the original uh interest scenarios for Call of Cthulhu was a here's here's a dungeon with Cthulhu's in it, and you go and kill little baby, whatever you know I forget what entity it was, but it took a while to even go, "Oh wait, we're talking about different sorts of scenarios, but we're still writing the one we're all familiar with, and so I guess my final thought before we get out of this then is that if you are uh think that what you're doing is extremely innovative, your trick then is to present." That innovation in the form of a very accessible scenario, and so and and how complicated your thought of what the first scenario should be will tell you you know how advanced this is and compared with other things, and how much how many mental roadblocks people will have to jump across, and so uh you know obviously it's simple to do well in this one, you also go through a bunch of rooms and and beat people up, but you will now realize by setting out what a basic scenario is how far you are from the norm and therefore how much work you have to do to get people to that to that stage and uh i think having summed up really it's yeah. time for us to uh exit uh, this hut and i think there's a very exciting hut where i think i hear the band warming up so let's uh, uh quickly move through, through this beautiful commercial and see what that's all about
1: Dracula is not a novel.
0: We know this.
1: It's the after-action report of a failed British
0: intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this.
1: And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries.
0: For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or
1: a Hand of Glory or read Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports.
0: If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has! You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled... Gar has assembled... The cuttings
1: from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF.
0: Available free with a special offer from the Pell Store.
1: Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook Standalone.
0: Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print.
1: Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get
0: 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021.
1: And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pell Grain store bookshelves without further expenditure.
0: Do nothing, Kickstarter backers.
1: All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings.
0: It's time once more to enter the rarefied confines of the culture hut. But this time around, the classic culture on display is not that of, say, a a symphony or uh, some complex jazz music. But speaking of things that are right down the line, we're talking about the music of Elvis. Elvis has entered the building, and he's entered not just any building, but a studio in Burbank, California in 1968, because beloved patron becker Todd W. Olson says and then asks... My Fall of Delta Green players, it's 1968 in the game, have mentioned Elvis a couple of times in the course of play. Fans know that Elvis' great moment in 1968 was his comeback special. But what elliptonic or mythos hooks would work best to bring the king directly into the game? And uh, Ken, by the king, I'm sure we're not talking about someone with a a pallid mask that isn't a mask, but rather Elvis himself. So uh, do you want to start to interface... Elvis and the Weird, could those two things possibly go together?
1: Who can say? Alright, just to begin, to get it out of the way, if you are familiar with the great album with possibly one of the best titles in rock and roll, 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong, you will remember Elvis's iconic gold lame suit, which he wore for the first time on March 28th, 1957 at the International Amphitheater in Chicago. He wore it relatively few times in its entirety on that tour, because he didn't like the pants. He would wear it with the black pants. But if you are looking for the iconic moment for the king in yellow, that's where it is. Now, I'm going to give everyone a couple of seconds to get that out of their systems, and we're going to go on talking about Elvis. So, Elvis, obviously, he grew up not just a a good Christian boy, but a Pentecostal tradition Christian boy. Uh, he was an Assemblies of God boy when he was a youth. And that, I think, left him open, as did the era, as did his own sort of relentlessly impatient nature to the sort of individualist, ecstatic explorations that were the hallmark of the 1960s. And Elvis's particular road into the New Age, or to the occult, depending on which side of the dice you come down on is via his hairdresser, Larry Geller. And for whatever reason, hairdressers to the stars turn out to exercise an awful lot of power over them. As we can all remember that John Peters began as a hairdresser before moving on to a lengthy career of ruining Superman movies. Right.
0: Well, the the bigger that the star you are, the less time you have for other people, but the more time you sit in the makeup chair and the hairstylist chair. So, Who has longer unfettered access to superstars than than, uh, hairdressers? Exactly. All sorts of time to pitch them on all kinds of things. And uh, I guess Larry Geller was pitching him on yoga.
1: Yeah. Larry, I believe, was interested in sort of Eastern religions and Eastern spirituality already. He and Elvis talked religion. Elvis would talk religion to literally anyone. It was one of the highlights, apparently, of hanging around Elvis as he would start doing Bible stories or he'd do a sermon He'd, he'd preachify, again, the Assemblies of God tradition. And so, he and Larry, you can imagine, talking religion, and Larry says, well, I think of religion as in a different sense. And he turns Elvis onto the works of Yogananda, whose autobiography of a yogi is the other half of the modern yoga that we understand now. We've talked about Swami Vivekananda earlier. Now we're talking about his, I don't say rival, but the other strain. And this is the Hatha yoga, the physical yoga that Yogananda uh, embodied. And Elvis was impressed by that. He was even more impressed when he heard that Yogananda's body stayed in a crypt in Forest Lawn Cemetery in Los Angeles and never rotted. So that was very impressive to him. He started hanging out with uh, the the woman who ran Swami Yogananda's movement in America. He said he wanted to found a temple and, and be a yogi. And she sort of had to explain well, Elvis, the universe intends a lot of us for a lot of things, and if you did that, think how disappointed all your fans would be. But apparently, she gave him real spiritual comfort, and uh that sort of set him off on this train of uh Eastern exploration. And again, you can go back and forth as to exactly how serious Elvis was on any of these topics, but at any time, you know, you, you put a book in front of Elvis, and he would. And if you were someone he trusted, he would read that book and he would write, you know, notes all over it. He, you know, his uh, his library of spiritual works is well read and well annotated, or, or thickly annotated. I don't know how intelligent the annotations are, but I know that they're there.
0: Right. So in terms of his occult library, he was no Jackie Gleason, but no. he, was, he was no Piker either.
1: But like Jackie Gleason, he also had a UFO experience or at least according to Larry Geller. And why would Larry Geller make up a self-aggrandizing story about Elvis? I ask you, Robin. So Geller said that Presley had a telepathic vision with an alien when he was eight years old, and that on one occasion, Junior Elvis was met by a vision or a picture of himself in the white jumpsuit, which is, of course, what he wore in the 1968 comeback special. So we're seeing some of the strands beginning to, to tie up. Uh, on the UFO
0: topic. Right. Now, now this was not you, right? No. In the time machine. I
1: I did not visit young Elvis when he was eight. I was mostly uh, hanging around with Elvis in the mid fifties. Different thing. You know, you go to Europe, you stop World War three, you hang out with Elvis. That's just the rules. So is other sort of UFO collect connection there is? The sort of a biblical inspired one, uh, in which allegedly Vernon Presley, his father saw a blue light UFO while his son was being born. So obviously you can have your, your star in the East moment. You can imagine three magi coming to baby Elvis to worship the king and give him gifts. And then on the sort of grounded, uh, creepier note, the producer, Ray Santilli, who made the Roswell Alien Autopsy movie claimed to have bought the footage when he was in Cleveland buying early footage of Elvis from other collectors and other people who had it. And he allegedly bought the first footage of Elvis ever in concert, which was not taken by this photographer, a guy who sent till he called Jack Barnett, which means his name is not Jack Barnett. But when he was going around to this guy... Not Jack Barnett. He says, I'm buying Elvis footage. Barnett's like, I was in the military. I took lots of film of Elvis when he was in the army. I can sell you that. But I'll tell you what, I've also got film of the aliens being autopsied after Roswell. And one assumes Ray Santilli, eager though he is to make his Elvis archival special, also knows a good UFO movie when he sees one. So. That is a literal elvis uh alien connection is that his image has been captured and manipulated by the same guy who captured and manipulated the alien u f o passengers in the Roswell craft, so that's a connection
0: right in reality as we know it, we have no evidence that says that Larry Geller is in any way related to Yuri Geller we do not right, but in the world of fall of Delta Green, if you have me go and uh you know star spawn, you can you know fudge that and have Yuri Geller show up, who, of course, not only wielded psychic powers, but is an, a, a UFO contactee.
1: I should note that uh, Yuri Geller claims to have appeared on the same bill as Elvis in Vegas at one time. Uh, that was in the 70s, but again, you can move it to the 60s if you'd like. And he attempted to buy Elvis's ranch house that he owned before Graceland in 2006, and it was undone by a cabal of real estate tricksters. So, Yuri Geller wanted some sort of psychic connection to Elvis and was thwarted. So, play that over in your Ten Types, kids.
0: And the comeback special itself happens in 1968. It's uh, shot in the summer of 68. And you may ask, well, why is it shot in Burbank? And the obvious question for those who are not in the know is simply that's where TV studios are. But we also know that Los Angeles has been a hub of the occult since at least the 1920s. And its long occult history includes a outpost of theosophists. Uh, Annie Besant was there for a while. You got your new thought there. Yates, his wife, who is a medium, had a vision of the other realm while visiting Los Angeles. And he wrote a poem about it called "A Vision. People we've talked about on previous episodes of the show. Manly Hall has his headquarters there. There's, of course, the whole OTO scene. Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard. Hubbard, of course, goes on then to found Scientology, also at about this same time, you've got Carlos Castaneda inventing his form of shamanism at UCLA, and also at this point, at about the time that the special is being shot, Charles Manson first starts calling his group The Family, and uh, the show doesn't air until December of 68, and then four months later, Manson informs members of the family that, oh, guess what, you're in a death cult. And demonstrates that by ordering the first of the attacks in his uh, series of murders that he orders, the one on CeeLo Drive. Now, we don't want to say that there's anything other than just a nexus of occult energy in Los Angeles that is the obvious place where you, let's say, resurrect Elvis. You know, bring him back from the, at least the creative death of his lamer late 60s movie musicals. Right but we're resurrecting elvis in this uh, special and, and the place where all the occult energy is is obviously the place to do it the question i have is that clearly aliens are involved with guiding protecting moving elvis toward uh, his his apotheosis as it were but in a lovecraftian universe there are no good aliens there's only mego so how do we square that particular rugos circle how do we what's going on here ken well,
1: we have a couple of options. We have uh, the possibility that Elvis is being manipulated as a counterweight against some other bad alien. So, uh, in the Delta Green universe, for example, the Great Race of Yith are basically attempting to... What they want is for the human race to sort of keep doing what it does until it goes extinct so that the Great Race can take over. But they are opposed uh, by the Loygor who want the human race to continue to degenerate and then summon up Cthulhu so that the great empire of San-Chan can uh, be formed, so that the Loigor can rule in Cthulhu's stead. So, you've got two alien species, each with their own agenda for humanity. So, while the Loigor may not be, you know, good, they are at least, you know, helping Elvis because they know that resurrecting kings is the sort of thing that lays a symbolic brick for the resurrection of the cruel empire of San Chan. And so they're helping Elvis in that way. And that's, of course, where you can even get to the point where he learns his uh, his uh swivel hippie snake dancing from is from some sort of Loigor spiral vortex energy. And the great race of Yith is trying to stop him and uh gets him into a bunch of Mediocre, at best, uh, Hollywood movies, where on the one hand he meets Anne Margaret, so good for you, great race of Yith, but on the other hand, doesn't really accomplish anything uh, musically or artistically.
0: Right, and you could also argue, I suppose, if you've you know just recently used the Yithians and the Loigor, that any Cthuloid cult or entity could just want the pure energy that comes from the resurrection of the king, that they can use that for anything, and you know there's only so much you can do with corrupt, horrible energy— uh, you can only do corrupt, horrible things, but there may be something that they need to, you know, use energy in order to make something or work something, something that's pure and good and awesome. And, uh, they can't get it directly because if they, you know, deal, well, I suppose I could, you know, strike any kind of deal they wanted with Tom Parker, but if they get right. directly with Elvis, they corrupt Elvis. And then that, you know, makes the energy, the same old energy that they can generate any kind of ways with human sacrifice and, you know, orgiastic prancing about and all of that stuff. So, you know, a situation where they need, somebody needs positive energy and the way to get it is to air this comeback special. And then of course the, the positive energy uh, flows through uh, all of America in December of 68. And that might in fact be, you know, in any sort of, uh, you know, way of washing away one evil corrupt power that has got its tentacles across the land and in fact, across the world. And of course, You blow them away with the the power of Elvis, and then once you've done that, you have your own different corrupt evil power that you can use to start messing things up in 1969, which, as we've discussed, has a bunch of horrible stuff in it.
1: Yep. And if you are looking to further uh, impute evil serpentine energy to any aspect of Elvis, we should recommend the short story Are You Loathsome Tonight by Poppy Z. Bright, which, of course, tackles that aspect of the question so if you're imagining that there is the corruption of Elvis and the pure good genius of Elvis and that they're at war with each other the snaky loigory corruption of Elvis is uh, very much on display in that uh, Poppy Z. Bright story so go after it that's what I say
0: well uh, once we've uh, got a bibliography that seems like the end of a segment so it's time to see what segment lies on the other side of this exciting commercial message The Best of Asphegeln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... and six-guns role-playing game Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Asphageln
1: on drive through. Help us out with a hunk a hunk burning support alongside such beloved Patreon backers as Robbie Carlton, Ruth Tillman, Steve Sigety, Tristan Knight, and Joe Webb. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Neil Barnes asks, A higher order reality infiltrates and tries to impose itself on our world. There are a lot of parallels between the King in Yellow and Jack Kirby's new gods. Any ideas for pillaging the King in Yellow for a four-color supers
0: game, Robin? Well, it'll have to be, I think, a Kirby-esque weird super weird supers game uh, could result from this and so the the two ways of figuring out how to do this with the yellow king role-playing game are it could either be a thing that happens as part of your this is normal now series and so this can be like a a scenario within it or you could even envision a whole sort of sequence that is just carcosan superheroes and so in the first version you could start off by in you know salting in one scenario oh well there's you know, you see kids reading white-mask comics, and uh, you know, this of course is a comic series that started in the 40s, and you know, now it's being revived again with the, you know, new hip comic artists, and you can introduce the other characters uh, uh, in, uh, you know, this superhero's team, which is called the Court, and he has such fellow superheroes as Princess Vine and the Green Fairy and the Egregore, Uh, and then in another scenario, oh, well, everybody meets up it's the big summer blockbuster release of The White Mask, and so they're doing a a version of uh, of this now for the big screen for a new cinematic universe. And then finally there's a reality shift that you find uh, one day you wake up and those characters are real, and they've always been real, and only you, who uh, who have successfully fought back in the past, are aware of the fact that these superheroes that are now saving people and having super fights and all over the news and stuff that they didn't exist yesterday, really. And it's up to you to figure out who has caused this working and then unwork it. Because if you're already familiar with Kirkosa, so you know, you know, a version of combo Superman and Batman, who's the king in yellow, you know, that's bad news. (laughs) The GM doesn't have to hint at that. Not a good universe. The other possibility of host to do it is, you know, you could do a full on weird occult supers game because as already part of the continuity, there's the idea that the King in Yellow and Camilla and Cicelda will periodically take a reality and sort of hive it off and set it off to the side, just as their plaything, as they do uh, during the wars, where they create this alternate history continental war in 1947 Europe and uh, create all these weird war machines and uh, carve up geopolitics. So it's quite different than in the version of reality that we know. And then they just enjoy all of the pain and suffering and awfulness that that causes. So they may decide to create a supers universe, which they are in as superhuman figures and see how much obedience that they can uh, reign from humankind and also, you know, how much fun they can have destroying stuff and beating each other up and just play with this idea until they grow bored and then, you know, corrupt and destroy as many people as, as they possibly can. And so even within the rule system of yellow King, the combat is so abstract that you could easily just through descriptions describe the standard combat system but you know you have eye lasers or super strength or uh, shape changing or whatever abilities that you want and so in that one the player characters would be asked to create their own superhero characters that had you know the themes of the yellow king and so you say well you can create a character that's named after you know any of the monsters in any of the books so you know you could be the ux or you could be argus with the extra eye in the back of your head and then come up with, you know, superpowers that uh, match all of those things. And oh, kind of, Harbor
1: Master. I don't want to play him. He's the worst. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Harbor Master, his powers are, he's a little rubbery when you hit him with a paddle. Mm-hmm. I guess he'd be the the, the Toad or the four-book right. man of, of this superhero universe. And so, you know, you would fight some crimes and stuff, and then ultimately you would receive your invitation to, you know, to audition to be inducted into the court. And then I guess you'd have a little bit bit of aspect of the boys where it's like, you know, this evil version of the Justice League and you realize that they seem to be the heroes, but they're really the bad guys and and then you uh you have to vanquish them. So you could, you know, extend that as as often as you want and sort of take all the different kind of classic superhero stories and do a yellow kingized version of them, including, you know, the one where in a near future you're all being hunted by Superhero killing robots, well, it's a a reality shifting game. So you can shift into that reality and uh, shift back. And, you know, the ultimate purpose is to realize that the whole alternate universe that you're in is corrupt and awful and, you know, revert it back to a a more normal. The the fights
1: are the point, basically. Um, I feel like you've got a lot of possibilities with, first of all, using the sort of multi-reality qualities of DC comics in the Bronze Age. Uh, to mask and to represent the multi-reality quality of a Yellow King game. You can, for example, have the White Mask as a comic book that was, you know, that starts out in the aftermath and people are, you can even have people reading it in the trenches, in the wars, right? They're, Oh, I've got the, the new shipments come from home. Let's see what the White Mask is up to. He'll give those continentals what for. And then in Aftermath, there's the question of, well, this was a part of the propaganda of the state, just like the Dream Clown was. What do we do about these? I mean, it's a, it, it's it's a big. Do we just shut it down? Do we murder all the writers and art artists because they're soon to be tainted? Can you recreate these superheroes in a way that will, you know, fight for democracy and and freedom and not being eaten by Carcosa? And so you've got a lot of. You know, questions. And then in this is normal now, that's when you start seeing, Oh, the white mask, that weird underground comic from the forties is being revived. And oh, now there's a movie. Oh, and now everyone's cosplaying as the white mask. So the whole street is full of people in tattered yellow capes with a pallid mask on. And you're like, Oh, I, I don't, I don't like any of this. That's not good. And even you may never even get to the part where there's real superheroes in the this is normal now world because you're worried that these comics become, you know, uh portals onto this other universe. Because, again, that's exactly in DC Comics continuity what comics were. You, with the way that, you know, the Earth One Flash grew up reading the adventures of the Golden Age Flash and said, oh, I should pattern myself on him. Well, there you go. What is that if not someone saying, I should uh, be like the the White Mask and go around and, you know, uh, uh fight decadence wherever I find it? And that's A thing right then the other sort of side of that is to in an existing four colors supers game whether it be mutant city blues or an even superior one your uh sentinels or your um marvel whatever it is do it exactly like the new gods that suddenly there's these figures uh that show up and everyone sort of heard of them but they're new also and so you know at no point does superman in the new gods, say, Apocalypse, what's that? He says, Apocalypse, that's that horrible death reality planet. So Superman already knew what it was. Everyone knows who Darkseid is. Oh, to stop him from getting the anti-life equation. So the system by which all of these new gods, uh new supervillains are familiar to you becomes part of the mystery. It's like, why do we know who the Egregore is? Why do we know who the Anku is? Why have I already got a history with Madam Blood? What's yes. happening? And so you can play with... The reality, the fungible reality of being a comic book superhero while the representation of that fungible reality, the, the, the court is emerging into your, Oh, no, we've always fought the court. They're a standard thing. And then it's like, Oh, we have to team up with the court against the anti monitor. And it's like, No, we don't. The court is the anti monitor. This is part of the thing. You're not listening to me. And then you get to be Rorschach and explain why these godlike superheroes that everyone accepts as normal are actually a horrific uh, intrusion.
0: Yes. And also why is Superman a weird Jack Kirby character now? Yeah. <laughs> That's disorienting too. And if you're back to just playing it as, you know, a, a sequence within yellow King, you can take the recurring, the the favorite bad guys or the, the least favorite uh, bad guys of the players that they've met before and recast them as superheroes or supervillains. So, you know, if they fought a Dame of the Vampire, now she's Madam blood. And of course, Camilla can show up as Princess Vine, who has this sort of bur- burgundy grapes thing going on. Uh, Casilda can be the green fairy, and you can bring in the whole absent thing. So uh, you could decide that, you know, possibly a real person from 1895 is uh, still alive as a superhero. So, you know, you might meet Radium Woman, who's Marie Curie, who instead of Being poisoned to death by radium, as she would in a in our real world, does what radium does in comic book universes, which has made her an immortal and, in this case, virtuous uh, superhuman. So, since you've got at least three different ways, I think to do that, I think that we've discharged our obligation to uh, esteemed Patreon backer Neil Barnes and can fly like a Jack Kirby character with all sorts of weird inky blocks behind us, cool dots into. Whatever waits for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF. Or in standalone paperback modules.
1: They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural.
0: By masters of top secret mythos horror, Dennis Detwiller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night,
1: discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human
0: ears. In Kaligati, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation. A gifted university student guns
1: down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's
0: researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice. A bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness.
1: Vandalism of a family home twigs Delta Green to mythos danger.
0: Hourglass. A woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex
1: Oblivione. Crazed words scrawled at a crime scene hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea.
0: The Child. A traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color, 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to wander into that most ill-defined device, the one that we don't really even know what it is or where its boundaries between the paranormal and crank science and alternate history really are until we... Look over into the corner, and there we see our friends, the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're enjoying a kombucha together. We look out the window, and there's the alien big cat screaming on the moor. And he's screaming, you're in the Elliptony hut. And indeed we are, because this time, inspired by an article in Mother Jones by Rene Ebersole, we're going to look at uh, an exciting new crank version of an old crank thing that is merged with another thing that people don't think of as crank pseudoscience, but turns out to also be crank pseudoscience. And that indeed is corpse dowsing. Because turns out there's a, a an instructor at the National Forensic Academy, which is part of University of Tennessee, which teaches a course to uh, forensic scientists. This was referred to by the Washington Post as the Harvard of hellish violence. Mm-hmm. And is not to be confused with another forensic thing at the University of Tennessee, uh, which is the body farm where actual science is performed. But at this particular institution, there's a guy named Arpad Voss, and uh, he claims to be able to use the power of dowsing and also some other weird inventions to find corpses. And uh, this is the point at which the seasoned elliptonist looks at some of the things that he says and some of the rationalizations of his institution and finds can. Some familiar themes.
1: Yeah, once more, we are in the uh, They Laughed at Galileo quadrant of the Elyptiny Hut, where a guy has come up with pseudoscientific bunk to explain old magic bunk. And, you know, I'd almost be happier if Arpad Voss said, it works because magic. Obviously, there's no science behind it. I'm a physical anthropologist with a PhD from the University of Tennessee, and I can assure you that the only thing that makes this work is magic. And you have to do it at the dark of the moon, and you have to awaken your pineal gland with holy water.
0: Yeah, but then you can't testify in court when you say that. Yeah, and, uh, you can't I don't get know. it accepted as evidence. Which it has
1: been. Which is, of course, part of our "everything is going to hell" subthesis, also known as everything is going to hell, the real world. So, the um Arpad Voss basically began his study on the quantities and qualities of gases emitted from a decomposing body. That was what his doctorate was in. He did uh, chemistry, he did uh, that area of the hard sciences, and then uh, was part of a very, very high-profile case, the Casey Anthony murder case, in which he testified that the air taken from the trunk of Casey Anthony's car was consistent with the fact of her child having died in the trunk of that car. And the defense brought their own chemist who said, or consistent with there having been a sandwich in the trunk of the car or with outgassing from a Twinkie wrapper or with lots of other things that could make that same bunch of gases.
0: Right. And he made this determination with his device Labrador, the lightweight analyzer for buried remains in decomposition. The use of such a a backronym itself should be a screaming red flag to anyone. Should be a screaming red flag. Well, anyway, after
1: having brought the Oak Ridge National Laboratory into disrepute, his contract was not renewed in 2012, and he fetched up teaching forensic science, including dowsing. He teaches lots of other forensic science at this National Forensic Academy. And you you hear the name National Forensic Academy, you think, oh, it must be affiliated with the FBI. Well... No, the FBI sends people to study there, but it's not anything national. It's just national in the sense that University of Tennessee wants it to be national. So there's lots of people who go from other real law enforcement agencies, Texas Rangers, who uh, have their own problems with hypnotic testimony, but we'll do that in another hut, no doubt. Lots of people go to this thing to
0: learn forensics. And when challenged, the National Forensic Academy says, well, it's only one of the techniques we use. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, look, we only do sacrificial rites on every third Tuesday, but that doesn't discredit the rest of what we're teaching people.
1: Yeah. Most of our work is actually just, you know, with the teen center and it's very good. Yeah. The, um, the National Forensic Academy teaches lots of things, uh, many of which are being called into question by DNA evidence. Um, there is an argument that is made that not even fingerprints are actually unique enough to be used in a murder trial. I think that we're back and forth on that, but certainly bite mark evidence, blood spatter evidence, all the sorts of evidences that you've seen on your true crime shows and your CSIs turn out to be, shall we say tea leaf reading,
0: right? They're often made up by one person, never replicated, never actually really studied. They have the veneer of uh, science. To them, but turns out, no, that's not how science works.
1: Nope, not so much. Well, I mean, it's how the first part of science works, where you come up with an idea. It's just yeah, not how any of the rest yeah, of science Yeah, but then
0: you works. don't declare that it's true and right. swear on a stack of Bibles and get people thrown in jail and sent to death row. Exactly. So,
1: uh, Arpad Voss teaches dowsing. He demonstrates it first in class, where he puts down a bone, and he has the uh, the students take a bent metal rod, and to make sure that, they're, that it's not their uh, body electricity doing it, the little rod is in a, uh, a straw so it can swing about freely. I always figure, like, if you're not going to use a, a bent witch hazel twig, you should have a better dowsing gear than a coat hanger in a, in a straw. But I guess. Right. Well, whatever. but
0: that makes it seem less magic-y, right? Yeah. That,
1: that lo-fi quality of it is, I guess, what you're going for. So the, uh, the rods he teaches you and he, and he shows you that as they walk towards the bone, look at that. They swing towards the bone. And then the students do it for themselves and are amazed to find the rods. Because towards bones the bone. can
0: they have piezoelectricity exactly, them, or many of them do, and so that's what they they attract. You know the dowsing equipment to it's not it's not the idiomotor effect that people have in region where they just tend to move things around when you suggest I'll move them.
1: Right, and if you can look down and see the bone, look at that—you moved it. No, uh, Robin, and uh, every class, every class we have to deal with this. There's some cut up. There's some Spicoli who's like, well, if they detect bones, why aren't they detecting us? We're bones. And then our ARPA ambassador was said, it only works on dead bones. <laughs> your live body puts out too much electricity. It'll damp out your dead bone electricity. Did no right. one see the matrix? And then everyone's like, okay, all right.
0: Yeah, and if other people fail to replicate this, it's because they're not doing it right.
1: Right, they're doing it wrong, as is always the case. And then um they go out and they uh do their dowsing. It is, as you say, only one day of the two-week class. But again... It's dowsing, and it, it's good fun, right? I'm I'm pro dowsing when you're doing it to find well water, and you're in Tennessee in 1880. Right. I'm a little less pro when it's the Texas Rangers spending someone's tax money to learn dowsing.
0: Well, if you hang it with a bunch of farmers today, they will tell you that water dowsing works because they've seen it, and. You know, I guess they're not counting the number of times it doesn't work. Right. Well,
1: I mean, in fairness, that is science right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they, they could be psychologists.
0: <laughs> yeah. He's uh, moved actually beyond the dowsing thing now to a quantum oscillator, which has a patent, unlike a coat hanger and a straw. That's the real right. drawback. That's where the real money so is. a coat hanger and, and a pop straw. Anyone can do that. And, and it supposedly picks up uh, the frequency of DNA. and can identify particular individuals even uh, by... Just, you know, because DNA, as we all know, gives off a distinctive, you know, radio frequency like ping.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like an RFID tag. Your DNA is basically God's RFID tag. E-
0: exactly. And, you know, again, if no one else can do that or approve it or have any reason to think that it exists, it's because uh, they're doing it wrong. And also, uh, I know there are lots of forensic entomology fans who listen to this podcast. Another of his inventions is they fly on a leash where allegedly... He's managed to train insects to do his bidding and go detect things because if you want somebody who's good at finding dead people, you know, hard to beat the fly, ask a fly, yeah. <laughs> that is their specialty, but he, w- he
1: will come clean and he says, well, the trouble is after you've gone to all that trouble of getting the tiny leash and putting the little computer chip on the fly, turns out birds eat them. So <laughs> that's, that's not ideal. And then, so you know kudos to him to recognizing when a a obviously beautiful concept like training flies to go on a leash and find a dead body just doesn't work because of birds. I think that's that goes a long way to you know making him seem all right differently crazy, not actually not crazy, yeah, so uh what you can do obviously with this in a game is that you could have in a a secret magic game you could have let's say uh delta green. There's the real dowsing laboratory that maybe is taught at the University of Tennessee, but just during the summer when everything's closed. Or there's the secret dowsing laboratory that the real federal government, the the Delta Green maintains. And it's like, oh, this is, dowsing is not good, but, you know, it does work. And if you feel like you need to, here's the way. That seems more of a Pisces thing than a Delta Green thing, but surely the March group is now out there uh, teaching mythos dowsing methods. And God knows there has to be some sort of, you know, ghoul saliva that if you drink it, it will like activate your uh, either your, your nose or your, your twitch, you know, it'll tune your idiomotor reflex so that suddenly you are dowsing because it's the nervous system and the blood in your arms that's doing the dowsing, not you per se. And uh, I, I feel like there's lots of fun ways to sort of, Back into a mythos version of dowsing that both works and is also terrible and horrific, and why would you do that? Oh, right, you're a player character. I know why you would do that.
0: Right. And in the esotericist uh, FBI profiler or forensic instructor are the two kind of sorts of characters that you can be. The idea is that you are you know agents drawn from uh, throughout the national security and law enforcement apparatus to occasionally fight, fight the occult. So you could be the guy who, you know, keeps getting discouraged by his colleagues at the forensic academy from, uh, you know, showing your technique. And maybe, you know, the real thing is that, yes, indeed, you can douse for bones, provided they have outer dark energy in them because they've been mauled by uh, creatures from the other side of the membrane. And so this can be a, a case can start out with maybe you've been, you know, sent to brush up your skills at this academy and you see the person you know, using this dowsing technique, and it's like, oh no, I see what he's really onto, and he's is using a magical power, which in the world of the outer dark we know is always bad, means there's some sort of outer dark entity out there, or, you know, so that once, you know, he does succeed in running across a a corpse, you know that, you know, he may be using it to, to, you know, to blame on the brother-in-law of the victim, but you know, has to be a creature, and you uh, have to call in the rest of your group. And that could be sort of a fun way to begin a case that isn't about, you know, being assigned a mission by Mr. Verity at the beginning. Or indeed, again, this could be, you know, the psychic ability that you have. And, uh, you know, there's no way it could possibly go wrong uh, having the ability to sense the twisted DNA frequency of uh, outer dark entities.
1: No, no, that's, that's a perfectly harmless power. The kind you yeah, might it's, want it's for your a power story.
0: that the GM loves. Cause it allows you to, to move you f- deeper into the storyline where again, there'll be no trouble for you to face.
1: Right. I, I like the idea just on a sort of slightly more general level of making true crime sort of an, a membrane eroding thing, right? If you're talking about exposing people to horror and uh, pointless fear and the depth of human depravity and evil, and doing it all day, every day, literally there are whole TV channels for it. And even though Outer Dark is not running Ted Sarandos, that we know of, there certainly, you know, maybe there's a group of Outer Dark esoterrorists that are putting together a bunch of true crime programs, and then they're trying to get the police to follow these nonsensical methods, because again, people are believing in things like bite mark evidence, and then it gets overturned that creates the cognitive dissonance. So it's, you know, putting out this pseudoscience, putting out this true crime, and then you, the player characters, you get involved, as you mentioned, via seeing someone do a thing and you're like, oh no, this was not the brother-in-law. This was the uh, outer dark, but now you're inside a true crime story. And, oh, who are those guys? They're the documentarians. They're filming this. They've got permission from way upstairs. We can't do anything about it. And they're trying to uh, create it so that if you do uncover evidence of Outer Dark, it will actually be worse. And so you have to figure out who actually involved the Outer Dark in this. Then you have to unframe the brother-in-law and reframe the esoterrorist who did it but frame him in a way that people watching on TV will believe, and that's you know sort of it's not just oh hunt down the esotericist, chop his head off with a shovel, and bury him somewhere. It's a bigger story than that. You're you're inserted into this true crime ecosystem, and it and there's no bottom to that well, uh, Robin. You can go as far deep into that as you want.
0: Right, but you know there are only so many gruesome crimes a year, and mm-hmm. uh, you know if all of the available ones are sewed up by different documentary crews chasing streaming contracts uh it might well be that the you know the outer dark entity contacts and go well let me know there's a there's another murder that's about to occur and it's going to be discovered by this corpse dowsing guy and it can be in, in fact that the you know the outer dark goes beyond exploiting existing murders to creating more bigger better more horrible murders that will draw in the numbers and continue to create that sort of Psychic multiplier effect.
1: Right. And you could, you know, pull it down to, yeah, this this crew of true crime documentarians are are actually sort of stormy petrels of, of crime that they don't cause the crimes, but the outer dark sort of uses them as a as a lens through which to shine the crimes. Oh, we were just doing research in the area. Who knew that there'd be a bunch of dismembered Boy Scouts, you know, start the filming and off we go.
0: Yeah. There's something about them where they just have that right completely exploitative touch, but just enough to get under whatever standards and practices exists at the streaming service that they work with. And so now the outer dark, you know, takes a shine to them and they may be, they may be all dupes or, you know, maybe the cameraman is the one who's uh, made the pact and is leading them on. Uh, But your job is to, you know, essentially they, they make horrible true crime cases uh appear wherever they go.
1: Mm-hmm. And again, you know, if you start getting into the true crime ecosystem, the media ecosystem, I'm not even talking about the actual true crimes, which are their own degree of uh, horror, but that ecosystem is is a fascinating place to tie yourself up in. And certainly it's exactly the kind of thing that you can darkly color as an esoteric op without coloring too far out of the existing lines.
0: Right. And it can all come out of someone who starts – you know imposing older magic onto forensic scientists and and get some attention from the other side of the membrane well we don't want attention from the other side of the membrane on this podcast so i think it's time for us to quickly exit but we'll be back uh, next week with something i'm sure is perfectly safe and of no interest whatsoever to demonic entities stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsor. Atlas Games Palgrain Press Ask for Gown, Arc Dream Dark Tower And Pro Fantasy Software Music as always is by James Simple Audio editing by Rob Borges
1: Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin
0: Keep this podcast's corpses right where it left them by joining such backers as Roger Edge Jason
1: Fritz Neil Kaplan Oren Gushuri, And Paul and Cleo Bushland Wear this
0: show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Enjoy such classics as Walrus Revenge. On Twitter he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D Laws. See you next time and once again we will talk about stuff.